All right, everyone. Thank you for joining the newest episode of Heal Thyself. Thank you for coming, taking your time out and uh, really supporting the show. I know I say it all the time, but I really am grateful that you are here with me and open and open to learn and open to empower yourself and open to empower others. It's very important for me and motivating for me, encouraging for me uh, to know that because it really does feel good and makes me want to just keep going, giving all the beautiful information that I can. So today, really good show. Going to go over some things, uh, including parasites. We've never gone into parasites and a lot of folks are suffering with parasites. So we need to talk about those. And then I have Dr. Mary Party coming on for part two of her gastroenterology knowledge bomb segment. So uh, she's going to be really covering heartburn and bloating in particular and some other details. So without further ado, why don't we get to that knowledge bomb? All right, parasites, we don't really talk about them. Um, even in gastroenterology, they're often overlooked. Um, they don't get the necessary attention that they need to. Um, and I think they're underestimated because we don't think that we are exposed to them the way that we are, right? We think about tropics, subtropics, third world countries where there's a higher amount of exposure. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of us are actually exposed to parasites. It's not a go-to really at your gastroenterologist, um, particularly because I, I believe the diversity of symptoms that it shows, right? It's multi-systemic. It's really hard to pinpoint clinically going, oh, uh, sounds like parasite, let's just take the test. Um, so it, it sometimes it can be a little bit ambiguous, but the fact of the matter is, is that naturopathic doctors, functional doctors, integrative doctors, it actually is often very real and often detected. Um, the, the kicker is actually 37% of people worldwide do have parasites. Um, the matter is that we co-evolve with parasites over time. So our body can handle them, yes, but when they are running rampant, overgrowing, depleting our system, then that can be a big problem. So in short, really parasites mean an organism that lives off another organism. And malaria is probably one of the most globally well-known parasites. Now there's different types. We have uh, protozoa, which are the microscopic one-celled organisms. And usually the transmission of these parasites are to the intestine, and that's from fecal oral route, right? So that's usually through contaminated food, uh, contaminated water, person-to-person -person contact. They can also be transmitted through arthropod vectors. This is like a bite of a mosquito or a sand fly. Uh, so we see that as actually a common transmission route. But again, we can also get it from contaminated food and water particularly. Some popular ones you may have heard of are Giardia, Plasmodium, Cryptosporidium. Those are some really, really popular ones. Those are common ones that we see in our field. The most interesting about these uh, types of parasite is when I learned about Toxoplasma gondii. Now, this is really fascinating. It demonstrates this behavior, right? Where the infected mice, uh, basically the parasite creates cysts and inflammation in the brain of that mouse. And this leads a to a profound change in the behavior of the mouse. So what we start seeing is that that innate fear of mice, right, to run away from uh, cats is gone. The theory is that maybe that the mouse loses the uh, ability to smell cat urine, and that's usually their trigger to run away, or actually maybe even more sexually attracted to cat urine regardless. The parasite creates a profound change in the behavior of mice, and what we see is that this mouse in particular will lose its uh, fear and then encounter the cat, be all willy-nilly about encounter the cat, the cat eats it, and now the cat is infected. It's an incredible cycle of infection, but 
really it's like brain behavior changing parasites and we see it in this in this animal so i just wanted to really bring up that important part about how parasites can work in certain animals. The other type of parasites that we see are helminths, and those are the classical wormy ones that you may think of when you think about parasites, right? And that's usually most commonly coming from contaminated meats, like cow, pig, fish, but other possible causes are, just like the other one, contaminated water, contaminated soil, um, contamination of anything with feces, uh, poor sanitation, poor hygiene. Now for the helminth parasite, these wormy ones, we could see it with our own eyes. Um, these are things like tapeworms, flatworms, roundworms. So not only do your dogs get it or your, your pet, but we also can get it as human beings, right? And they suck, literally and figuratively, uh, because they slowly deplete your health. They eat up those nutrients that you're trying to feed your body with and utilize them like a parasite and utilize their nutrients from their own self. They wear down your immune system and they can lead to chronic health issues over time. Another fascinating example of behavior control that we see in helminths are in snails. So snails get infected with a trematode when they eat bird droppings that are filled with this parasite's egg, right? And these, these parasites are known to infect mollusks and vertebrae. When this parasite is inside the snail, the parasite goes and grows into the tunnels of the eye stalks of the animal, right? And then it starts pumping its embryo into the sacs of the eyes. So then all of a sudden, the snail's eye sacs or eye stalks start looking like pulsating rings. When that's happening, it becomes much more attractive to the predator. On top of that, the parasite changes the snail's daylight rhythm. So all of a sudden, you're starting to see the snail outside midday with these pulsating eye stalks that are attracting a bird. The bird sees it, eats the snail, it infects the bird. The bird poops again, and then the cycle begins. What an incredible cycle for this parasite. I was always fascinated when I learned about this too in behavior modification. Um, but yeah, it's something to keep in mind about how these parasites can really act. It's like they have a mind of their own. So what are the symptoms of some parasite infections? Right, they're, they're wide ranging, as I mentioned, multi-systemic. And this is why it can be hard to diagnose clinically without a test. But usually they manifest with digestive issues, right? Unexplained constipation, diarrhea, persistent gas, abdominal tenderness, abdominal pain, some vomiting. Skin issues, right? Unexplained rashes. All of a sudden you have eczema. All of a sudden you have hives. You're very sensitive to things. Itching, muscle, joint pain, fatigue. Even when you're getting a good night's sleep, you're still feeling like you're sluggish and dragging. Uh, constant hunger, even after you're eating enough. But you also may see weight loss associated with that, right? That's, the, that's a parasite action, sucking up your nutrients. Never feeling full, even after a big meal. Clinically, we can see iron deficiency anemia, right? Your lab test can show abnormally low levels of iron. What about one in particular that is, can be a telltale is grinding your teeth, especially during sleep. Unexplained feelings of anxiety, recurrent yeast infections, itchy anus or vagina, right? Especially around a full moon, we can see that as a parasite cycle, uh, this can manifest mood swings. So you see it's multi-systemic. It's hard. It would be hard to just off the bat going up, oh, you have parasites because it can manifest in different systems. And it doesn't have to be all of these um, symptoms. It could just be uh, one or a few. So let's keep that in mind. But certainly if you are suffering with any of these, especially prolonged and can't get to the bottom of what you're going through, I think looking into parasites or talking to a doctor about parasites would be very much so warranted. So who's most at risk? People who live in tropical, subtropical climates, for sure. 
but also people with a poor immune system, people with a poor microbiome, people who eat meat, people with high sugar diets, uh, people who are regularly jumping into pond lakes and rivers all the time. And if you're con in contact with feces, whether it's occupationally or even if you have pets. So definitely you wanna wash your hands regularly, especially if you're touching uncooked food or maybe feces or contaminated food with feces. Make sure you're always washing your hands. Cook food to its internal temperature that it's supposed to be at. Make sure you're drinking clean bottled water or you have a water filter. I know Berkey makes one that is a travel filter. So even if you're out in nature, you can um, filter that water really cool. Avoid swallowing any water from those bodies of water that I mentioned, lakes, streams, and ponds. Um, and if you have a cat, and especially if you're pregnant, avoid that cat litter or cat feces. All right, so how do we test for parasites? Well, you can do a comprehensive stool test. For me, I prefer a three-day one, and this would look at the eggs, right? The eggs of the parasite in, in the stool to determine the presence of an infection. You can do, also do an endoscopy colonoscopy, especially if you're not finding anything in the stool test, but also um, symptoms are continuing. You can do an endoscopy colonoscopy. That's where they put a tube through the mouth or the rectum respectively, and they can visualize that area and take tissues if needed. Can also do a blood test, but not for all parasites, but you can also do a blood test or a blood smear. Um, you can look at antibodies or literally the blood itself, and uh, you may see an elevation of white blood cells called eosinophils, okay? So treatment-wise, there are antiparasitics out there, but they can be particularly strong which and may have a lot of side effects. So you have to weigh the cost-benefit, especially based on the severity of the infection. But you might want to talk to your doctor about starting some more alternative therapies that have less of a profile of side effects and much more gentle, uh, like berberine, grapefruit seed extract, papaya and pumpkin seeds, garlic, wormwood or oregano oil, black walnut. Now for the, the latter three, wormwood, oregano, and black walnut, I do like the mixes from Mediherb. Mediherb, in my opinion, has these tinctures that are the best in the world. Really, really, really strong. I have black walnut and wormwood from them, and they are so, so strong. Um, I know Organic Olivia makes a really good um, formula for parasites too. And I will say, if you are doing some sort of parasite protocol, understand that you may experience something called a Herxheimer reaction. And this is basically when you make these interventions, there is a parasitic die-off reaction. And these are releasing toxins into the body, which may make you feel worse initially. And it can last days or weeks. So you want to make sure you're working with uh, a professional who can help you uh, dose as long as, it, as long as you need to and actually... Uh, scale back if you need to as well. Some things that you may experience if you have a Herxheimer reaction are things like a fever, basically chills, you can get a fever, malaise, achy muscles, achy joints, maybe sore throat, um, even some sweating. And this is real because I've actually experienced Herxheimer reactions when I did two protocols in my life, a parasite protocol in early um, med school, and then a candida one in late med school. So they, uh, Herxheimer reactions are absolutely true. Um, and just know that it's working, but you may need to scale back. Make sure if you are starting anything, you are among threes or your routes of elimination are open and flowing, right? So you can fix you can fix the constipation if you had it. If you don't sweat, you gotta make sure you start working up that core body temperature and opening up those sweat glands, really important. If you don't like water, make sure you're infusing it with some fruit or something, but you gotta make sure you're constantly opening up and keeping open those routes of elimination in the body.
And that's parasites. And I'll say they're real. And here's why, because I've had a personal experience with them. I'm pretty sure I never truly took the test, but I just went straight to treatment and started feeling better. I ate in 2007. I'll never forget. Back in April, I had this orange roughy, which was a fish and it was undercooked, but I was really in the rush to get to school, uh, back to school because I was commuting and I ate the orange roughy, which is undercooked. And I remember my digestive system the next week just going downhill. Um, all the symptoms of IVS across the board. I, I, I got tested, I got endoscopy, colonoscopy, all those things checked. And at the end, I was just diagnosed with IVS. Um, and for a while there, I didn't know where to go. I just you know, defaulted to me having IBS. Then I learned more about parasites and I actually did a parasite uh, protocol initially that did include some of the things that I mentioned. And I did have a die-off reaction, as I mentioned, but I also started feeling much, much better. But I had a lot of those symptoms that I mentioned. So certainly, if you're experiencing those symptoms, as I mentioned, talk to your doctor and start exploring. If your doctor doesn't want to explore, then get with a functional doctor, get with a naturopathic doctor, and we can help guide you and test and get to the bottom of it. All right, look, that was the knowledge bomb. Parasites, parasites, parasites. Check them out. Um, I'm really excited to start talking to Dr. Mary about a few things. So let's get started with that. All right, everyone, today's special guest, friend of mine, an awesome doctor, Dr. Mary Party, is here for the second time. Uh, she was here last time. We spoke about all things gut health, but we didn't get to cover everything, right? Because we really packed in that show. But now we're, talk we're covering really, really important topics when it comes to gut health. So Dr. Mary Party, thank you for coming back and joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, uh, so last time... We covered a lot, right? We were covering uh, SIBO, uh, antibiotics, um, the microbiome. Mm -hmm. What else am I missing? FMT, fecal transplant, we mm -hmm. talked about. Um, yeah, we talked about antibiotic usage, what happens to the microbiome with that. Placebo effect, we talked about a mm -hmm. little bit mind-body mm -hmm. things as well. Uh, I think those were the, the big things. Okay, but we didn't talk about some of my favorite mm. symptoms of an imbalanced digestive system, and that's bloating. Mm-hmm. Right? Bloating and yep. heartburn. Yep. Very common. Extremely common. It was actually interesting because both the conditions we decided to talk about today, about 30% of the population has experienced both of them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in terms of like super prevalent, and I would say way more than 30% probably have experienced both. Yeah. Do you find just folks come in and... It, they're not even coming for the bloating or or the heartburn. That's just something they're like, oh, yeah, well, I have some bloating. It just doesn't go away mm -hmm. or heartburn. Because I feel like every single person who came into my office, they had something going on, either, either or bloating or heartburn. Yeah. I mean, they're super, super common, especially at one point in your life because there's, there's life stages that people will go through as well. Like pregnancy and heartburn are super common. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll talk about that. But at some point in your life, you've experienced bloating or heartburn. I think 100% of the population can say that. Yeah. So let's go into chronic bloating. Okay. All right. So um, this is something that I've actually been particularly sensitive to. Mm. Um, I had I had an issue. I don't know if I had food poisoning and my digestive system was right. just been off mm -hmm. for years. But really one of the major uh, side effects that I feel or symptoms that I feel is bloating. Mm -hmm. um, but it, like you said, it's super common. What are some of the main causes of bloating? 
Yeah, and there's there's so many, but I want to go over a few of the, the big ones. Mm-hmm. And so what you're um, talking about is likely something called post-infectious IBS. So you had a foodborne pathogen, um, or you got an infection with something like Giardia. Giardia, I think, is one of or is the most common cause of post-infectious IBS. So basically, you had this infection, and then you develop symptoms of IBS, which can be diarrhea, constipation, bloating, combination of those things. That's a super, super common cause of it. Um, the other things, though, that are less commonly known, and actually we talked about this last podcast, so I won't talk about it too much, but swallowing air, mm. super common. And it sounds so silly, but during the nighttime, if you have a CPAP on, you're at increased um, chances for just swallowing air passively. And then anxiety conditions can actually manifest in swallowing air. Mm. So that's a, that's a really common one as well, as well as just eating too fast. Yeah, which we all do. We all do it. We scarf it down. Yeah. And so we talked about mindful eating in the last podcast too, mm-hmm. so I won't go too much into that. But if you're not present with your food, you're more apt to be either swallowing air or just eating way too fast so that you're not producing digestive enzymes, hydrochloric acid to digest your meal and to process it. And then you're left with, with floating as well. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ones in terms of just eating too fast, swallowing air. The other thing is visceral hypersensitivity. Mm-hmm. What this means is that your people some people are just more sensitive and experience the feeling of bloating despite a lack of normal gas in the intestines so they've done a few studies and they've looked to see okay there's this many people that say that they're bloated let's see how much gas is actually in the intestinal tract and what they find is that between controls and the people that are positive the subjects with reports of high gas they have about the same amount a lot of the time And so um, it's normal to have anywhere or pass anywhere between a half to a liter and a half of gas on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about is farting normal, Mm -hmm. an amount of it is normal. Um, So about 10 to 20 times in terms of frequency per day is what they say is normal. And so either people are thinking that they have an abnormal amount of gas, but they actually don't. Yeah. Um, that can be a, a big one. And we see that with IBS sometimes is just this visceral hypersensitivity, meaning that there's normal things going on, but you're more sensitive to it. Doesn't even mean necessarily that it's all in your head, more so that your body is more sensitive to perceiving a pain that may or may not be there. So it's this disconnect between the gut and the brain, the communication that says something, something's wrong when something's actually not wrong. Do Is that because they have uh, their nervous system is much more sensitive to it after an infection or like like what would be the cause of a visceral hypersensitivity we don't really know either and so some of the hypothesis behind ibs and post-infectious ibs specifically is that there's kind of a kink in the enteric nervous system and a communication as well between the gut and the brain so what happens um, with ibs post-infectious specifically, is sometimes you can develop antibodies against a piece of your enteric nervous system. Mm -hmm. So there's a test now called the IBS SMART test that looks for these antibodies, things like anti-vinculant antibody. And then there's there's another one as well that I'm forgetting the name of. But it looks for these two antibodies, and those are going to be in response to the nerves in the intestines. And so it might be something like that in terms of a Mm cross-reactivity that your body creates. Um, So originally you produced an antibody against the infection 
and then it looked similar or something to your body's tissues, and then you created an antibody against yourself. And now you have this issue where, you know, you have a miscommunication between the gut and the brain, so there can be a lack of motility or perceived visceral hypersensitivity. Mm. Yeah, it's something that I noticed within myself because I would feel bloated and I look in the mirror and I wouldn't look bloated. Mm -hmm. Stomach would be flat, but mm -hmm. I'd be like, what is happening? Why do I feel so bloated? Yeah. I feel the pressure. Yep. Um, so, and I, and I don't think I've heard that covered in many podcasts, if any. So I really like that you brought that up for people. Um, what are other causes that, that you can think of? But, well, we talked about SIBO, mm -hmm. which, which can really... SIBO is its own cause, yeah. for sure, but I don't want to dig into it too much. Because we already, we, we covered that yes. in depth. For SIBO, though, the, the cause is the hydrogen and methane-producing bacteria, which are from, you know, bacteria or archaea in your intestines. So we won't dive into that, but that, this is just bacteria-producing um, mm -hmm. gases. So that's where a lot of our gas production is. The other thing that you can produce gas, though, in your intestines is from the breakdown of proteins and fats. Mm -hmm. So CO2 is a gas that you can produce just because of digesting proteins and fats. So with bodybuilders, you'll hear them a lot of times say that they're eating so much protein and they're passing a lot mm -hmm. of gas. Mm -hmm. um, but same, I can see that with the paleo diet or people that are perceiving the paleo diet to be a high protein diet when really it should just be a whole foods diet. Right. So um, dietary things can have a huge effect too just in the production of intraluminal gas. Um, the other thing for bloating is going to be dietary factors with bloating. Mm -hmm. There's so many of these, and we did talk about a couple, but snacking or just eating a processed foods diet is going to cause bloating. And that's not an issue in terms of it's not an issue with your body. It's an issue of what you've decided to put in your body. So ultra-processed foods and then just grazing throughout the entire day and not allowing that migrating motor complex, which is um, the trigger in your small intestines to clear things out and move things along every three to four hours of fasting. So if you're not triggering that, then that can cause bloating as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that check into the last podcast because I don't want to repeat too many mm -hmm. things that we chatted about. But eating too much food... That's a big one for bloating. So in one sitting, if you're eating way too much food, then you're just going to be bloated, right? Yeah. Um, so there's some simple things in terms of try to just go to a whole foods diet first, eat three meals per day, drink plenty of water in between meals. You know, there's simple things that you can do from a dietary standpoint to really reduce your chances of bloating. And then there's malabsorption conditions, things like um, lactose intolerance, super common, mm -hmm. um, especially gradations of it. So not all people are going to get diarrhea with dairy, but maybe they're just getting a little bit of gas and bloating with it. Um, celiac disease, that's mm -hmm. another cause of bloating. And the one with celiacs is that people think that you have to develop it as a child. You totally don't. You can develop it as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, any sort of new onset bloating that's disrupting your daily life quality of life, you want to see a doctor. You want to rule out the big things like celiac disease, lactose intolerance. Yeah. Um, you want to get the full workup done, SIBO, all of those things. So, so then there's a lot of folks who are like, Duh, should I take digestive enzymes then? Mm -hmm. Is that going to help my bloating? Um, what, where, do you find that they're even helpful for folks, or especially if it's part, partly from the food? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not talking about malabsorption issues, right, anything, right, but right. just really just issues with it. Is that one thing that the people listening or viewing can ask their doctors about? Like, mm -hmm. how do they go about finding out, well, what's the root cause of my bloating when it comes to food? Yes. And so an elimination diet, just going to a whole foods diet, you can do that by yourself, right? Um, and in terms of do you want pancreatic or digestive enzymes involved in it, sometimes they can help. 
I always ask, though, the question of why. Why aren't you producing enough digestive enzymes mm -hmm. on your own? And there's a lot of different causes. Pancreatic insufficiency is one of them. That's less common. You would see fat in the stool if you did a stool test. Um, but a gradation of it is more common, meaning that you don't qualify for pancreatic insufficiency, but you're not producing adequate amounts of your own or optimal amounts of your own digestive enzymes. It all gets back to the point where we're talking about in terms of are you slowing down? Mm. Are you chewing your food? Are you meditating daily? Are you being present? Are you smelling things? Are you just, you know, shoveling things in? Because mm -hmm. if you do, your body's not going to be producing your digestive enzymes like mm -hmm. it should. Yeah. And not even at least in the preparation of what it would be like if we were cooking our food, really present with it. Mm -hmm. And then our body's like, oh, you've given me the chance now to produce these, right? Right. Uh, prepare our stomach. Um, so what about hormones? Do they play a role in bloating? A hundred percent. Yeah. And so endometriosis is another cause of bloating that we don't talk about that often. Um, there's actually some, you know, like up to date, like some of the medical resources we use. If you look at bloating with those, they don't even mention endometriosis as a possible cause. About 96% of women with endometriosis come for their first symptom of GI conditions, whether it's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, bloating. 96% report bloating with endometriosis. And so endometriosis is an estrogen-dependent um, condition where you have endometrial tissue, which should be where? It should be in, in uterus. Yep. your uterus. Um, and it goes other places. So it can go to the intestines as one of the places which you can see it. And because of that, you can get those symptoms of digestive issues. Pain is going to be a really common one with endometriosis. You don't get pain with all bloating. Um, people may say that they're in pain, but then you have to distinguish, are you in pain or is it a discomfort? And those are two different things, but it can be hard to kind of tease apart. You know, estrogen-related things like endometriosis can cause bloating separately. Um, and then progesterone. So progesterone in your luteal phase should be the highest, and progesterone slows down the motility. So a lot of women will have constipation mm -hmm. prior to their period um, because of that. And then estrogen, so so estrogen is bad in endometriosis just because there's too much of it or it's promoting this inflammatory condition of endometriosis. But estrogen is not bad for digestive health in general. Estrogen actually sensitizes your cells to serotonin, and that can decrease um, any sensitivity of the intestines, so making you feel less pain. Mm. Um, so that's helpful in terms of if you do have IBS. Mm -hmm. You so, can feel better in the early part of your cycle. Okay. So hormones do play a role. There you go. They do. So the, the, the takeaway then is that bloating has so many elements to it, right? A lot of people are just like, I get bloated and I think it's because of dairy or I get bloated because mm -hmm. it's when I eat broccoli. Well, sure, it could be that, mm -hmm. but there could be so many other layers. Um, and IBS is really something that I've always been fascinated with because that's what I was diagnosed with yeah. back in like college, early college. And I'm like, well, what the heck's IBS? They're like, mm -hmm. well, you know, we, we kind of excluded everything. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of what we're left with. And I had right. the endoscopy. I had the colonoscopy. They couldn't find anything. Um, but, you know, just you have this hypersensitivity in your stomach, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just, it's just, it's uncomfortable for many folks. So I think it's really important for people to uh, look for what? A naturopathic doctor, functional doctor, where we can yeah. go, go deep into it. Workup, Get the sure. full workup, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, we've danced around it, but SIBO is the, one of the big ones. So mm -hmm. you look at a lot of people with IBS. I mean, it's over 70% of people with IBS have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that we should stop at the diagnosis of IBS. We should always be looking for, you know, one step further. Why 
is your stomach or your gut not working? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it leads us down to motility, right? And other things can cause a lack of motility besides SIBO, like diabetes or scleroderma, an autoimmune condition. Um, so really seeing, is your gut not moving? Are you constipated? Is that why you're bloated? So having one bowel movement per day is... Minimum. Minimum. Essential. A lot of people don't have one bowel movement I know. Day. I didn't used to. Yeah. And that's a problem. Big problem. You also don't feel good. Yeah. So there are some people that can have one every other day and they feel great. I still would say, well, let's see what happens when you have one every day. Do you feel better? If not, maybe you're the outlier, but the majority of people are going to feel so much better if you have a bowel movement every day. On paper, are we supposed to theoretically be going to the bathroom after every meal? I mean, so it's one to three times per day, Mm -hmm. and even more than that you can have, and it's still normal. It makes sense that we would go after every meal because of that migrating motor complex. Mm -hmm. You don't see many people that do. So maybe it's just because we don't have the microbiome of, like, the Hasda tribe and things like that. So maybe we would be if we really shifted things. But that would be ideal for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. We covered bloating, but I got to know about heartburn. We have a lot of folks out there. (laughs) I've even had heartburn. You You know, here's the funniest thing. When I, man, it was probably when I was like 13, 14, I had heartburn for the first time and I, I convinced myself I was having a heart attack when I was young, but it actually does mimic for f- folks does. for the first time, right? It does. And I'm glad you said that because I would have forgotten it, but <clears throat> heartburn is not just a health issue. It's an economic issue because of that. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's about 96,000 hospital admissions every year for heartburn. $640 million are spent on the treatment of heartburn because of that, because hospital admissions are extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so heartburn not only becomes a health issue, but it's an economic issue too. We spend a lot of money on it every single year. Yeah, who knew? So mm-hmm. so heartburn is basically defined as that sphincter opening up right there, all that stomach acid coming up and irritating our esophagus, right? Yeah. And so people can experience it a lot of different ways. So Mm -hmm. it can be like that warmness in the chest. It can be just chest pain, which is the tough one because then you have to get an EKG and work up that way. You can also just experience a cough, hoarse voice. Mm -hmm. Um, You can experience, yeah, backsplash of acid all the way up to the mouth, like regurgitation. Mm -hmm. It can be that bad. So there's several gradations of it and people experience it differently. But I've had people just come in with a hoarse voice or a cough um, and they've actually had heartburn as well. Mm. So what are the, some of the reasons why our esophageal sphincter is just not closing up properly? Relaxation of the LES, which is the lower esophageal sphincter. So your esophagus goes down, meets the stomach, and that little area is called the lower esophageal sphincter. And so if that is relaxed, then acid backsplashes up into the esophagus and you get those symptoms of reflux or heartburn. Um, so that's one potential thing. And that's that's one of the most common causes of, of reflux as well. And so why does that happen? This is an interesting one because in like alternative medicine, we have a different hypothesis sometimes than in conventional medicine. And um, I actually am somewhere in the middle, maybe a little bit more towards conventional, but conventional medicine is view as excess acid is backsplashing up in the esophagus. That's why you have mm-hmm. reflux. So the treatment is a PPI. Mm-hmm. And we have to talk about 100%. PPIs, mm-hmm. both show. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and... In alternative medicine, there's an idea of low stomach acid not closing that lower esophageal sphincter, keeping it open, allowing that backsplash of acid into the esophagus. So it's Mm -hmm. like high acid, low acid, and it's not one or the other. So I think that it's somewhere in in between. Low stomach acid is hypochlorhydria. 
and it's super common in older people. So above the age of 60, hypochlorhydria becomes really common. In the younger population, we don't have a lot of evidence that it's very common. And you can put people on hydrochloric acid and a lot of people won't get better and it can exacerbate a lot of people's symptoms because they actually have too much acid. So it has to be one that you have to be careful of. And I hear it thrown around a lot um, in more the alternative, not mm -hmm. even naturopathic, but like mm -hmm. other um, health fields. So, so that's a possible cause too. Intra-abdominal pressure, meaning that you're overweight, obese, or pregnant. So pregnancy, we're not going to decrease the intra-abdominal pressure until you give birth. But in overweight and obese individuals, which is huge in mm -hmm. terms of the percentage of the population, I think it's what, 66% are overweight? That's a lot of people. And 40-something obese, um, and the number keeps going up. So with that, weight loss has to be the primary treatment. Mm -hmm. Pregnancy, you deliver your baby. Mm -hmm. So it's symptom management there. So you mentioned intra-abdominal pressure. What mm -hmm. about then, uh, you mentioned the methane gas mm -hmm. from SIBO. Yep. Can that theoretically be causing yeah, intra-intestinal pressure? For sure. And you see a huge overlap of SIBO and reflux um, because there's a few reasons, actually, because the first part, so one... One of the theories with um, reflux is actually that things sit too long in the stomach. Mm -hmm. And so just the sheer amount of time that things are sitting there, some of it's going to backsplash up, right? Um, and so one of the reasons behind that is why aren't you having motility? So you often see reflux paired with constipation, and it's like you just have a sluggish GI tract. So we have to make sure that things are clearing out. And um, the first part in terms of gastric emptying into duodenum, which is the first part of the intestines, that's regulated by the migrating motor complex. Mm. So, if you're snacking, so, yeah, so if you're snacking nonstop, then that's really going to cause be causing a lot of heartburn. Yeah, and it becomes really tough because you can't eat huge meals with reflux either. So some people will go to the smaller mm. meals and that's sometimes actually helpful. So you get this catch-22 where you really have to start to re-regulate the intestinal motility in some cases of, of reflux. So looking at that motility, do you have constipation? Let's get the bowel moving so you're actually clearing those gastric contents and they don't have the time to backsplash up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what are some of the implications? So if we have that backsplash irritating our esophagus, mm -hmm. um, there's, is it predisposing us to cancer, for example, or just deteriorating the tissue? Is this, is this mm -hmm. something that you're concerned about in, in your field? Yeah. <laughs> what I mean, about your a, field? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> my field is podcasting now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, Barrett's esophagus, which is, um, you can see dysplasia, which is the beginning stages of possible cancer. So you don't know that it's going to turn to cancer. But when you have any sort of erosion or acid eating away at the esophageal tissue, mm. first of all, it's just not good in general. So you have gastritis as well. Um, you can destroy the tissue, create an ulcer, um, which creates anemia, you know, mm. and goes down that road. Um, so yeah, you don't, you don't want reflux. You don't want it to go untreated. You want to figure out mm. the cause. And that's why I actually use PPIs on certain occasions. Mm -hmm. Am I going to get stoned for that? No, you won't. Okay. No, because I'm, I'm actually a proponent that PPIs can be used for short term. Short term. And I'm sure you use it short term. Yep. The problem is I had patients who came to me and they were like, oh, psh, I've been on Prilosec for years mm -hmm. now. You know, I take it like candy. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's a problem. Especially because... Um, what, 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 what did they find in PPIs that was really a big issue? There's so much, first of all. First of all, there's, so there's two main classes of medications for reflux. Mm -hmm. 
PPIs are proton pump inhibitors. Those are the bigger guns. And then you also have H2 blockers, which block the histamine um, receptor and decrease acid production that way. And they're a little bit more mild. Um, and their side effects are a little bit less as well. So they're the safer, you know, longer term one that you can use, except Zantac came out that it had high levels of NDMA, mm -hmm. which is a carcinogen. So Zantac was pulled off the market, which is ranantidine is the, um, is the name for it. Mm -hmm. And so all of the ranantidine products are pulled off the market because of possible carcinogens. Not all of them had high levels of this compound in it, but a good amount of them did that the FDA pulled it. Mm -hmm. So even the ones that we consider you know, safer, you don't know additive-wise. So ideally, we get people off medications if we can. PPIs, though, do have have some long-term consequences that are pretty well known in terms of their main mechanism of action is to shut down acid production, right? Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things is that some of our bacteria actually have the same um, proton pump that our parietal cells have. So when you shut down acid production in your parietal cells, which is the goal, you're also shutting down the bacteria's production of acid. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you have bacteria in your upper GI as well as your lower GI, so your stomach as well. And so one of the things is that if you're going to shut down that, then you might be creating a dysbiosis, an imbalance of bacteria or fungi um, that have these hydrogen potassium ATPases just like your cells do. Mm -hmm. So that's a less known one, but also a potential mechanism for SIBO. If you're decreasing acid production, the overgrowth of bacteria is much more likely mm -hmm. because acid's main job is to, do, or is to protect us as well as to degrade... Um, certain foods as well. Mm -hmm. But if you're not having enough acid, then we might have an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestines where your stomach dumps into. Increase of infections like salmonella, foodborne infections, because you don't have enough acid to protect yourself from it. So um, that's Candida. another one. Candida, mm -hmm. um, possibly C. diff too. The research is a little bit. H. pylori even possibly. Mm -hmm. um, so infections, SIBO as well. And then decrease of the absorption of nutrients that require stomach acid. So mm -hmm. stomach acid is not just there for all fun and games. It's very important. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons it's there is to increase the absorption of B12, Calcium, iron, magnesium, all of these are acid-dependent. Mm. So the other one that's linked to that is that we've seen an increased risk in dementia with PPI use long-term. Mm -hmm. This one's still under investigation, but both Alzheimer's is just as well as just general dementia. And so we're not talking about the eight-week course that you can use to treat a peptic ulcer, but instead the long-term, like you're talking about right. one, two, five, six, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And there's people that have been on them for, for sure. years. And even the guidelines, like on the paperwork for the PPI, say try to discontinue every six to 12 months, and ideal treatment is eight weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's not unknown. But with dementia, what they saw in the mouse model is that there was increased beta amyloid. And then also, I think it's the B12 possibly correlation, where if you have low B12 level levels chronically, it can increase your risk for dementia just because of the neurological effects of B12. Mm. And what about anything with bone, bone density? Osteoporosis. Yeah. Big one. Increased risk of. Uh, hip fractures um, with long-term PPI use. And that can be both calcium-related because you're decreasing the absorption of calcium, but even when people supplemented with calcium and then we're taking a PPI, so independent of calcium intake, we saw increased risk for fractures and due to the PPI's effect possibly on the osteoclasts, which are your bone remodelers. Mm -hmm. So it does have an effect on that. So uh, mm -hmm. the, the the big picture is that these PPIs, yeah. or even, maybe even H2 blockers, they're not a long-term answer. 
Mm-mm. Contrary to what maybe your gastroenterologist may say, mm-hmm. um, it's not a long-term antibiotic. We really have to get to the root cause. And we actually went over a few of the things that are causing GERD or bloating. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything interesting that about the two that we didn't mention that mm-hmm. maybe we just, you know, because I couldn't wait to talk about uh, heartburn, then we maybe skipped over some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, and I will say a lot of um, gastroenterologists do try to get their patients off of it. So I work with a conventional gastroenterologist, and we work together. He pe- you know, sends people over to me to taper people off of them. And you do want to taper off of them in most cases because you'll get rebound or mm-hmm. ref- um, like a heightened secretion of acid after you take off a PPI, especially if you go cold turkey. So tapering mm-hmm. down, we have really good success rates with getting people off of PPIs. Um, that's as long as you've already got your diet in check, right? You're eating whole foods diet. You're not um, drinking milk can be a big one. So lactose intolerance for reflux as well. And um, stress is a huge one for reflux. So, you know, I had a person last week who her diet was in line. She was not overweight. She was actually underweight. And she had, you know, had a lot of emotional stressors in the last year, which was the trigger of, of reflux. And she hadn't dealt with any of those. Mm-hmm. So you, you talk a lot about emotional, you know, more yeah. like energetics and like holding on to things. Mm-hmm. But I think that was a big part of her case. And she totally thought so as well. So we're really working on mental, emotional, and just figuring out the stress component mm-hmm. for, for reflux. It's a big one. So I have two questions for you then. Uh, what about folks who just um, chew on Tums like candy? Do you recommend that or is that really having an effect on their stomach acid and maybe affecting their digestion as a whole? Like we said, we want our stomach to be acidic. Your stomach should have a pH of two um, and it protects you from the overgrowth of bacteria, SIBO, and um, all, all the other things that we've talked about. So you mm-hmm. don't want to just rely on Tums all the time. Um, ideally, you want to figure out what's wrong and fix it. And how about uh, folks who, does it really help to sleep upright? It does. Yeah. But it does because you're just not getting the symptoms of it. So Mm -hmm. you're not, um, you're not fixing the issue. You're just decreasing the damage on the esophagus. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, And so uh, especially people that wake up with a cough or a hoarse voice where a lot of their reflux was actually at night, Mm -hmm. increasing the incline of the bed is a great way to do it because you won't get that backsplash. You can do it by buying bed risers and just putting them at the head of your bed to actually lift the whole bed up is a good way. But um, again, you want to figure out like why you're getting that increased production or symptoms in the first place. For sure. So much of health is hanging out in the gut, Mm -hmm. so we really need to optimize it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if anyone is wondering, half the stuff we spoke about on the other show, so, you know, I would even say, check out that show too. They overlap pretty well. They overlap pretty well. We did a really good job. We did. (laughs) We didn't talk about herbs today. We didn't talk about herbs. So, all right, so why don't we talk about it like this? What are some of your favorite herbs for digestive health? Oh my gosh, talk about herbs. Yeah, you want to talk about herbs. Tell us some of your favorites that maybe some of the folks listening or viewing can go, hey doc, um, I want to know if I can start this herb. Is it safe? Is, is it effective? Will yeah. it interact? Yeah, well, you have to know your medications mm-hmm. and talk to your doctor about those specifically. But for bloating, we have so many herbs for bloating. Um, charcoal is not an herb, but it can really help with bloating. You don't want to take it if you're constipated, though, because it'll make constipation worse. If you have diarrhea, it could potentially be helpful. Um, the other thing for bloating is peppermint. 
peppermint's a great herb for bloating and IBS. It can slow down the GI tract a little bit as well. Um, and then ginger, for people that are constipation predominant with bloating, is like my favorite herb, like ginger teas, mm. um, ginger capsules, adding ginger to your food. Um, so those are great ones for bloating specifically. For reflux, deglycerated licorice root, DGL tablets are awesome because they not only help to relieve the symptoms, kind of like a tum, I tell people, you know, you can replace your tums mm. with it, but it also helps to heal the esophageal lining from any tissue damage because it has a lot of healing properties in it. Um, chamomile is also a really soothing one. And then for, for GERD specifically, we have D-limonene, which is an extract from citrus. And that helps with like the motility issue of reflux to make sure that things are going down. So that's a great one too. We have a lot of prokinetics, meaning motility agents mm -hmm. um, that are herbal, but those are kind of some of my, my go-tos. There's also um, marshmallow, like, what is it? Not a tea, but like a cold brew marshmallow mm -hmm. drink, demulcent mm -hmm. drink that you can make. Um, as well and sip on throughout the day with reflux. I did it in school. I had it in a mason jar. Yeah. Yeah, because I used to get heartburn. I didn't know why, but mm -hmm. um, now I do. Um, how, do you like bitters? Oh, love bitter. How you we love didn't, bitters. How do we get through a show without talking about bitters? I don't know. I, don't, I, feel, I feel ashamed. I, we both love bitters. Love what bitters. What are bitters? Are they just... How, how do we use them? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, bitters are, they're usually in tincture form, right? Mm -hmm. So gentian is an herb that we consider a bitter, but there's a lot of them. And we usually make them from an alcohol tincture base. And you can drop them into water and just sip them before a meal. And so bitters help to stimulate your own digestive enzymes to get your body ready for food, motility, all of those things. And those can help with both reflux and bloating. And you can also just eat bitter foods. So that's mm -hmm. part of my treatment plan for almost everybody is to increase intake of bitter vegetables, things like kale, arugula, dandelion greens are one of my favorites. Those are bitter. Those are super bitter. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can just increase your intake of bitter foods to get your body ready. Yeah, I think we, uh, as a society, just stay away from bitter foods because mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I don't, I, they, but they're, they have therapeutically help, help, mm -hmm. helpful for all of these things. So mm -hmm. um, arugula being... It took time for me to like arugula, but now I like it. Mm -hmm. I'm on the dandelion. I mean, I'll still get eat it, but it's it is bitter. Bitter. Really bitter. But I always go, oh, well, good for my digestive system. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, Dr. Mary Party, where do people find you? I know we said it before, but for the folks who didn't listen to that episode. Yes. Um, so my company is Modern Med. M O D R N M E D dot com. Instagram at dr dot Mary Party. Those are the two best places to find me. Mm -hmm. And you're out here in L A. LA, practice them based in Century City, but mm -hmm. we do majority telemedicine. Perfect. And telemedicine is a big wave of the future. You mm -hmm. are an awesome integrative doc, functional doc, naturopathic doc. Um, love to have you back to talk about things outside of the digestive system because you are a wealth of knowledge. So mm -hmm. we're going to do that hopefully sooner than later again. <laughs> awesome. I would love to. You will break the record for most Thanks appearances. For me. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. I'll see you. All right, awesome combo with Dr. Mary. As good as always, thank you all for tuning in, rating, reviewing, subscribing, supporting the show. I really appreciate you all. I truly do. Make sure you tell everyone you love, everyone who needs help, everyone who can benefit about the show so they could just start getting better overall. We are trying to change lives and that's what we're doing. I love you all and I'll see you next week.